1: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Monday, January 15th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Good morning, Jason, and welcome back,
2: Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, Jason, one of our most popular shows of two thousand and seventeen, much to our surprise, uh, was when we had our mutual friend Casey Lobaugh on from Deloitte to share what they 're seeing in retail. Casey is Chief retail Innovation Officer and a principal for the retail practice at deloitte. Uh, Casey, welcome back to the show thanks i'm I'm happy to be back yeah we're we're uh, excited to have you on uh, we're all here live together, so that's exciting too. We rarely get to see our guests so Uh, I just want to say your hair
1: looks amazing. You're having a really (laughs) good hair day. I was up all morning. Yeah, okay, good, good. A lot of product in there. Uh, Having the best hair amongst the three of us is is a very low bar. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But Casey, uh, welcome to the super rarefied air of the multi-time guests. Um, uh, Honored to have you. Last time on the show you gave us your – your full background, but like obviously the, sh- the show's expanding exponentially. So there's a lot of listeners that may not have heard your first episode. So can you remind us just a little uh, bit about how you came to your role at Deloitte? Oh, sure thing. And uh, first of all, thank you guys for having me back. Thrilled to be here. A uh,
0: longtime listener about that. Um, <laughs> so my background, I've been with Deloitte a long time. And in fact, as I think about the number of years, it's a bit scary. I, I'm, I'm approaching 22 years uh, with Deloitte um, in, in our retail practice. And you were the first teenage partner. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I like Doogie Hauser Deloitte. of Deloitte. Um, early on, you know, early on with, with Deloitte, I really focused on e-commerce. Uh, so we're talking, you know, 99, 2000, 2001 timeframe, you know, helping retailers... In many cases, launch e-commerce, figure out what it meant to to operate and and get you know operations in place, and then we went through a period of time where we were helping retailers scale. And then it was really all about maturing business processes, you know, adding new technologies that that gave more sophistication around e-commerce. You know, after that, I did a bit of a pivot and started working on this thing that at the time we were calling multi-channel, omni-channel, helping retailers figure out how the channels work together, and did a lot of work around omni-channel strategy. And then more recently, I spent a lot of time on the future of retail. Like, where is it going next? Uh, How how should we think about it? What are the implications? Uh, How do we create, you know, winning strategies against uh, a very fast evolving retail environment?
2: Cool, awesome. Let's start with kind of a tactical question. We're sitting here; it's January fifteenth. The dust is still setting settling on holiday seventeen. Um, what What do you think about? What are some of the insights that you drew from holiday seventeen? Kind of an early look of of what you guys saw.
0: Yeah, a, a great question. Um, you know, so interesting enough, we do a uh, we do a report for our clients. We don't publish it out, but we do share it with our with our clients about what we saw. So we just put the wraps on that last night. You know at the highest level i'd say it was a good holiday uh, obviously uh, we believe it's the best holiday uh, you know in many many years now for for retailers um, up up around five percent four point nine five percent uh you know so so clearly a good holiday and in uh, no surprise e commerce you know put up about fifty percent of the holiday growth um, but that also means that there's some growth that's coming from brick and mortar when you look at it in pure dollar amounts. It's about a 60-40 split, 60% of the growth, you know, coming from an e-commerce standpoint, 40% of the growth dollars coming from brick and mortar. And maybe that's a surprise because we sort of look at it and want to think brick and mortar is growing a 1.7, 1.9% somewhere through there. But when you do the math, it's actually a, a big amount of dollars, yeah. you know, and yeah. we lose. That 1% we
2: lose. against,
0: you know, 85 to 90%. So, that's right. So, so we lose track. Yeah. We lose track of the number of dollars that come along, and, and that's one of the things we try and highlight. Um, the second thing I'd point out is you know, many of our uh, the retailers in the marketplace, I, I like to say they're they're celebrating, um, but in many cases, you sort of have to look at that you know, somewhat skeptically. Um, the market's up 5%. So if you're up 2%, if you're up 1%, that means you may have had positive results, but you're losing market share relative to the market. So we sort of always have to think about these things you know, from a relative standpoint. So if you are as strong as the market, good. If you're stronger than the market, great. If you're not as strong as the market, that actually shows that you still have weakness relative to, you know, what's going on with the consumer. And so I wouldn't take too many victory laps too soon. Um, And that's part of what our our findings sort of reveal here.
1: Obviously, we're doing this show from the NRF Big Show in New York City. Uh, I know you guys haven't had a chance to get to the show um, yet. uh, Any like expectations going in what do you what do you think uh the big topics are going to be this year at the show yeah so that that's a a a good question as i think about
0: the show one of the things i've sort of grown um i even tweeted about this earlier in the week was i'm always anxious to see what the new buzzword is uh the vendors seem like they're in this this arms race to figure out who's going to coin the next the next buzzword Mm -hmm. um you know, whether it's um, what cognitive commerce I saw, you know, seamless, we know from years past, you know, multi-channel, omni-channel, I threw out those buzzwords, a lot around personalization, a lot around blockchain. And so there's a lot of, you know, re- vendors who are really trying to coin the buzzwords. The interesting part is if you look historically, the buzzwords have never been the answer. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You know, if you think about it, you go back, we've done this study where you go, okay, back, let's go back five, seven years where omni-channel was the buzz. And you say, okay, who, who were the ones that retailers that were winning around Omnichannel? And when you look at it, you go, they were winning because they had capability, but at the end of the day, they actually were not the winners. And so you sort of have to tear that apart and look at it and, and be skeptical. And I encourage everybody to be skeptical of the buzzwords and sort of challenge whether or not those are, are, are really winning strategies. So that's, you know, as I go to the floor, I'm really looking at what are the new buzzwords, you know, what's being said by the industry and how should we think about it?
2: So I'm gonna guess you're not all in on cryptocurrencies. <laughs> you're not gonna do a, a a Casey ICO. Uh,
0: no, well, I, though if we just added Bitcoin to um, the show here,
1: your your stock would skyrocket. A bit yeah,
2: we we are going to do a Jason and Scott coin. So just uh, you know, later in the year we'll talk That's about that good strategy. I yeah, <laughs> don't want
1: to disclose too much too early. Um, but I, I actually was, I was at CES last week, and like sure enough, Kodak <laughs> like literally. Yeah. launched a, awesome. a cyber currency and got, got uh, some ridiculous uh, kiss in their valuation. That, that's awesome. And, oh, by the way, I, I, I
0: believe in the power of blockchain, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to be revolutionary, um, but that's different than the hype around crypt, cryptocurrencies that's yeah. currently going on.
2: Cool. Well, at the end of the show, we definitely want to talk about future stuff. But um, one of the reasons you're here on the show is you guys have a new report coming out in March, uh, and I think you're going to debut it at Shop Talk. So we'll be excited to watch that. Uh, and we're real excited because you have offered to give our listeners an exclusive early look at the report here on The Jason Scott Show. Uh, the report is called The Great Retail Bifurcation. Uh, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Uh, my full-time gig right now is on-demand car wash with Spiffy. Uh, and I talk about this all the time because people say – uh, you know, I talk to some folks and they say, why would someone uh, pay for a service like this? Why don't they just go to a $3 car wash? So I re- bring up the bifurcation. So you guys have been a, a great resource uh, in the re- older report, and I'm excited to see this new report coming out. Um, so let's dig into the report, but let's start out with, uh, you know, you guys have, uh, you, could, you could come up, you could write about a lot of different topics. Why the bifurcation and what's the genesis of the report?
0: Yeah, so one of the things we try and do is we try and look at what's going on in the industry, what's conventional wisdom, and, you know, honestly, one of the things I always try and do is take on conventional wisdom about what's going on. Um, And if you look historically, you know, we had done a big report that we called the digital divide that looked at how mobile devices were being used, and, and we thought the industry wasn't thinking about it correctly. Um, because they were thinking the industry largely at the time was thinking about mobile in, 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 to the degree it was generating transactions. And we said, eh, we, we actually think we had to look at it differently and let's look at how it's influencing in store sales. If you recall that report, mm-hmm. that was sort of conventional wisdom first that we took on. Um, and then subsequently, uh, we wrote a report called, um, the retail volatility index, When, um, you know, a lot of retailers at the time were sort of thinking about and and still today about, you know, the big online retailer and to the degree that they're, you know, affecting uh, retail. And so we took that on to say, well, there's something else going on here. And if you guys recall, it was really the fragmentation of share that was happening, that was happening at nearly the same pace as we were seeing consolidation of share. Um, And so from that, you know, we started scratching our head about you know the conventional wisdom today and we hear words like digital transfer, like retailers need to do a digital transformation um or you know, the, the idea that there's this retail apocalypse going on yeah. right now. I Call mean, it malageddon. Yeah, malageddon or, you know, um, that somehow the industry is being, you know, dramatically disrupted. Um, and by the way, that's usually put in the context of people shopping online and not shopping in stores anymore. We've also heard the the, the narrative that, oh, it's the millennial. The millennials ruin. ruined. Have you guys seen the list of all the things the millennials are ruining, right? Yeah, they're killing everything. Everything, yeah. including yeah. retail. Fabric softener. So we decided to sort of start digging <laughs> – <laughs> and and uh, clearly, uh, what are the, the,
2: the but not um, avocado toast? What, they're what, they're putting all their money in the avocado it, toast. It,
0: the new things, the, the the tide tide pots. Yeah, pots, they're, well, they're yeah, eating they're, those. They're yeah, eating yeah, those, that's right? right. <laughs> uh, so, so we started to take on this conventional wisdom. So we said, so let's let's dig into this and figure out is any of this true, and which parts are true, and which parts might not be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was really the impetus to sort of take on the research. At the time, we didn't know what we were looking for. We just knew. This was the conventional wisdom, and we wanted to start tearing it apart. So we started looking at – and by the way, this this research has been going on for about 16 months now. So we started looking at the economy first. Now, at the time we were started – as we started to dig into the economy, we started to recognize, wait a minute, the economy is actually strong. You know, even if you clearly a lot of people sort of recognize today the strength in the economy, you go back 16 months and all the signs were, were there that the economy was strong. You know, the unemployment rate is at a, you know, a near historic low, you know, already um, the home price indexes have the index has rebounded. And in fact, we've now got you know the highest home prices we've ever had. So record breaking home prices, uh, consumer sentiments gone through the roof. We know that. And the median income you know for for the consumer has now exceeded where it was in 2007 so by all expectations you'd kind of go wait a minute we ha- we have a strong economy so how can we be having the retail apocalypse yeah. if, if the the economy's yeah. that strong and the good news
2: is unlike the great recession of 08 uh, it's not all on the back of debt so people are actually saving during this right. kind of you know boom
0: cycle so that's, that's absolutely so it right. feels
2: like it's you know doesn't mean it won't go down, but it's definitely a better setup than we had kind of like in 06, 07.
0: That's right. See, yeah. I mean, really, if you think about that, in the last year, this idea about the retail apocalypse has really taken on a, a ton of momentum. At the same time, the economy and, you know, the consumer, is, you know, is strong, right? Um, and not only that, but then you look, the stock market's gone through the roof, mm-hmm. right? So we've got more, you know, more value on the balance sheet of our consumer. And then even when you go over and you look at, the retail industry, the retail industry is actually showing strength and it's been showing strength for some time. Um, you know, one of the things we've looked at is the correlation between GDP and retail sales. And there's always been a strong correlation. And in fact, if you look back over the last, you know, 18 months, retail has been outperforming the GDP, you know, at a pretty significant clip, right? So, um, in 2017, we saw three and a half percent retail sales growth, Uh, And at the same time, we saw GDP about 1.7%, right? Now, if we look at the projections for this year, GDP is supposed to be strong. Last couple of quarters, it's been 3% or so. And and of course, the holiday, we've seen good results there as well. Um, In our own survey, we did a bit of a survey around the great retail bifurcation and asked people, hey, did you spend more in the last 12 months? And what we found was 44% of the people we surveyed said I spent more. 41% said I spent about the same. So is 80% spent the same or more. Okay, that all lines up as well. Even when we look at retail by categories, we find strength. Now, it may not be in all the, the categories. You know, from time to time, the categories are different, but we saw we've seen home improvement up. percent beauty cosmetics and fragrance up five percent home furnishings 3.3 now apparel seen softness uh, up about one percent and by the way we've done a, a, a deep dive into apparel and one of the interesting things we found there is is a real deflationary pressure around prices so we've seen units of apparel growing faster but then with a the deflationary pressure on prices. Um, and we'll get a little bit into that. Do you that.
2: think that's private label
0: causing that? Or Yeah. So as we think about the great retail bifurcation, if you hear me as we tear this apart, one of the things we see, you know, has to do with with the consumer and their available dollars to spend. Okay. So if you if you couple that idea with our previous you know, report that talked about fragmentation of share, less mm-hmm. barriers to entry, we've seen competitive forces really driving deflationary pressure so you're you you know off price um you know fast fashion and a lot of these pressures sort of build up and they're causing for deflationary pressure got it okay um so you know what's that pain i I just painted a picture that says the economy's strong right relatively speaking and retail's actually doing well all right 3.5 percent who can complain about that so then that you know causes you to think further about okay well, then what's going on? What, what, what are we missing? Especially if you look at the headlines. I mean, the headlines across the board, you know, from, uh, the, you know, from the press sort of paint this really, you know, they have painted this really bad picture about retail. And that means to me that, like, there's something missing. So what we did is we said, well, let's, let's keep digging deeper. And there's a, there's a quote. I always love sort of finding the right quotes to think about situations. And Albert Einstein said, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know where to look. Okay, so we took that and we thought about that. And in retail, well, where do you look? You look at the consumer, right? The consumer tells us, you know, what's really going on. So we said, okay, let's take all of that and let's dig deeper, you know, into the consumer. So again, we didn't know what we're looking for, right? So we looked at generational differences. We looked at regional differences because we had hypothesis, you know, uh, hypotheses around urban versus rural gender like we really started trying to rip this apart and we did our own survey to support this we looked at uh publicly available data through all these dimensions and one of the things that started to reveal to us was when we looked at it through the consumer's economic lens right Mm -hmm. um that's where we started to see differences i'm going to talk a little bit later about the idea about millennials but the reality is we did not see dramatic changes generationally right we didn't see dramatic differences, urban versus rural, because I had some hypotheses around that. It was really when we looked at it through this consumer economic lens um, that we you know, were able to start to see some things. So what we did is we took, um, we took the consumer and sort of broke them out into three cohorts, and we used you know, the, the government's sort of classification around this, around low income, middle income, and high income, mm-hmm. and started to try and figure out, well, how are they behaving different? How are they shopping different? You know, are they... You know, do they have the available money? Where are they pressured? Right, and those are the kinds of questions we looked at. So the low income consumer, you know, has income below fifty thousand. Right, the middle income fifty to one hundred thousand, and high income is one hundred thousand or more. And you know, as we start to look at that, interesting part, it's like a 40, 40, 20 percent split. So forty percent of the population low, forty percent middle, twenty percent high. Um, and of course, if you look at something simple like homeownership, clearly you see that skewed with 49% of low income owning homes and 83 plus percent in the high income owning homes. Mm-hmm. Um, as we as we tore into that, we looked at income. Well, how are they performing from an income standpoint? We looked at non discretionary expenses, right? Because we know income minus non discretionary leaves discretionary or disposable, and really that's the amount that really drives retail. So we thought, let's rip that apart. And let's understand net worth differences, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And here's where we saw a profound difference. Here's where this was the aha moment. This is when we dug into this. This is for us what, what defined the research report when we started to see how drastic the differences were. And for me personally, I would tell you, you know, I follow retail. I, I, I read, you know, I, I listen to the Jason and Scott show. I, I do everything I possibly can to understand what's going on. And for me, this what really was an aha moment. Mm-hmm. So I, I, yeah, look, I know, and we probably all know, we've heard about the bifurcation of income between the high income and low income. We probably heard that for a long time. But the degree to which it has happened you know, in the last 10 years for me was shocking, right? The degree to which it, it's happened in the last 10 years. And so when we started to look at that, the fascinating part about this, like if you look from 2007 to 2015, what we find is that over 100 percent of all income gains went to the top 20 percent over 100 percent. That means the other 80 percent of the population didn't do so well, didn't do so well. And we're talking, you know, negative to flat at best yep. for 80 percent of the population. Right. Mm-hmm. So think about that. Um, in some ways, I call this the the, the lost decade. Right. Um, for many of our consumers. You know, and by the way, you know, as I talk to my own colleagues, as I talk to the executives across retail, I always have to remind everybody where where we fit, where you fit as an individual within that, because you have to keep in mind that, you know, odds are, you know, that that you're you're doing favorably in this income or in this environment. If you're an executive, if you're, you know, technology vendors, many of the listeners of your shows and, and, and likely the owner of a car wash.
1: Podcasters, yeah. Pod- yeah, that's right. Yeah. The owner of a
0: spiffy car wash, <laughs> joint,
1: right? Regular <laughs> uh, Rig, listeners of the show will know that Scott travels with his own gold throne,
0: he's actually <laughs> sitting on right now. Yes. He's doing the wear my, oh, I'm like perfect.
1: Snoke. I wear my gold robe. I'd say over, of over
0: yeah. 20% of all income gains went to Scott, apparently, yes. right? Oh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, this, this was really profound. Now, I would say in 2016, um, you know, there were, continued to be some income gains, and some of those gains actually were spread out more than they've been in the past, to where at least at this point, in, you know, since 2007, the low income has actually gone positive slightly. Um, but there, you, know, you see some, some gain here. Now, the problem is income isn't the only component here that matters, right? So I've heard this like, well, the stock market, right? Stock market's up, right? Well, the problem is, is that the top 20% own 93% of the stocks. So any appreciation in stock is all, you know, almost flowing to the same top 20% who have gotten the income gains. And, and, and by the way, yeah, I, I don't have the facts behind this, but it is my own personal belief that, when we talk about digital disruption, we talk about technology. Technology is fueling this, this bifurcation of the income where, you know, uh, if you think about the available jobs today, I read someone the other day that said there are now more open positions that are going unfilled than ever in the history of our economy. Mm-hmm. And you can go, okay, well, why is that? Well, unemployment rate's low. Well, there's a lot of people, though, that, you know, that, that want positions that have gone off of the unemployment roster because they're no longer seeking. And it's, I believe it's a mismatch between the available jobs, which, you know, are more technology oriented and the available skill sets. Yeah, there's a big skills gap. So on the
2: 80-20, so so that's a population. So if there's 300 million people in the US, 80% are in that, haven't kept up and 20% are ahead. That's right. Does the wallet split pretty evenly? It seems like the wallet, because the 20% are so affluent, it seems like it would almost be like, you know. 90% 90% of the wallet, 5% or 10 on the wallet side that's right. flip. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. So there's
0: a uh, there's small percentage of the population that's really con- controlling a, a big part of the, the economic spend. Got it. So the interesting part, though, is you dig deeper, right? As I dig deeper, this only gets more pronounced um, because all we've talked about so far is we talked a little bit about balance sheet stocks and we talked a little bit about income. Uh, when we – then look at non-discretionary spending this gets more pronounced in that non-discretionary expenses have skyrocketed and as they've skyrocketed the effect of the lowest income has been the most dramatic i mean think about healthcare during that same time period 2007-2016 up 66% uh, education up 41% food housing transportation 18 10 and 3 respectively so you put all that together and you put that against a flat to decreasing income and what that does is it puts pressure onto disposable income or discretionary spend. Um, and in fact, when we, look at, you know, when we look at that proportional impact, it really becomes pronounced that the non-discretionary expenditures for the lowest income have in- increased 22%. Hmm. Okay? So again, zero to negative, and then 22% increase in non-discretionary expenditures. Yeah.
2: I think the only relief is gas prices are down from –
1: yeah that time frame that's but, right
0: that's right so there's some there's it's some not offsetting
2: what there's some the real increases, increases. Yeah.
1: Yeah. although it is funny i mean we're we're talking about how these macroeconomic uh things affect consumers gas prices to me is always one that i think of as a little bit of a red herring mm-hmm. uh people pay close attention to it and follow it super closely but it's it's not a big chunk of that uh non-discretionary budget uh for for the average household so it's it almost seems like people sort of overweight it. Like right. where if healthcare is taking 30% of your non-discretionary money and gas is taking 2%, it, it doesn't matter that gas is cheaper. Right, right, right.
0: You yeah. have to sort of look at it in aggregate, and that's what we try to do is look at non-discretionary in aggregate, knowing that there's you know, shifts occurring. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: what, what's, what's fascinating
0: is I talked earlier about deflationary prices in apparel. Uh, in, fact, in fact, we see deflationary prices in certain Um, areas and we see inflationary prices now you know i haven't been able to tear this apart to figure out now what drives the deflationary pressures what drives inflationary pressures um you know i I have my own hypothesis again this is not a proven um, fact yet um at least that i've been able to prove out but i believe that those areas where technology has been able to make more inroads and more impact drives the deflationary pressures those areas where it's slower to adopt you know less so so, so, for example, I talked about healthcare, you know, uh, being an industry that I I personally believe is still tons of opportunity, and technology has not made as many inroads. Maybe it has in 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 other areas. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's dig deeper. Okay, discretion. Let's talk about discretion discretionary share of wallet. Then, well, what's the what's the consumer left with? Um, the fascinating part here is low income. Uh, has had a, a negative 16% change in discretionary wallet. In fact, they've gone negative, right? In 2015, their discretionary wallet went, went negative, mm-hmm. um, a, a dramatic change from 2007. Um, and if you go up, the only the only cohort that, that had an increase in discretionary is the high income. So 4% increase and a 4% may not seem like a, a dramatic increase, but when you put it against the, the amount of dollars that are you know coming the, in it's actually, a hundred thousand dollar plus yeah. it's it's a significant amount of additional money. So when I started to think about that, um, in fact, you know, what we show is you know low income uh, now has a net change in discretionary income of nearly three thousand dollars negative, while the, the highest income is up around thirty two thousand dollar net change in their discretionary income. So we've got one consumer that has money, money to spend, um, and one consumer who is more pressured than ever uh, around around their own dollars. And therefore, you got to think about price sensitivity of the bottom eighty percent versus available dollars of the of the top
2: twenty percent. Yeah, you, you talked about low, medium, high at the very beginning. And now you're kind of got two buckets. What happened to the medium guys?
0: Yeah. Well, I sort of grouped those together, I'm sorry. So I yeah. sort of grouped together um when I talk about the 80, mm-hmm. right, who are doing uh not as well, so they act you more know. like the low yeah. than the high. Yeah. That's right. So I sort <laughs> of just divided like the, t- the top 20% is doing well, the other 80% okay. is pressure. Got it. Okay. Okay. So then I started thinking further about this idea about well, retailers are really competing for discretionary income they're competing for disposable but we also know over the last 10 years something else has changed and that's new categories of disposable and specifically we looked just at one um devices devices and data plans so if you went back to 2007 you know who was spending money on devices and data plans to 2016 who's spending? and of course what we now know is uh all income cohorts are spending on devices and data plans Um, and if you looked at digital spend as a percentage of income digital meaning on the device uh, for the low income category it's up 3.6 percent just in the last year uh, and the high income is only up 0.71 percent as a as a percentage of their dollars going towards this category okay so what, what reason the only reason we dug into this was to say that you know for the low- and middle-income categories that used to spend on certain retail you know, items and spend, their their discretionary disposable is squeezed, and another portion of that is going to new categories of spend that maybe they weren't to in 2007. just shows more and more pressure building up, um, and for us, we sort of view that as an increase in the price sensitivity that those categories have, right? So that, for us, was sort of really interesting about – Tearing apart the consumer, because at the macro level, the economy is doing well, but it's not doing well for everybody. OK, uh, at the at the macro level, you'd think retail's doing well, but let's dig deeper and figure out, well, what's going on. So what we started to do is to say, OK, well, if that's occurring, how might that be manifesting itself on the retail industry itself? And, uh, you know, there's another quote that I like to quote uh, often is follow the customer if they change we change. And that was from the uh, Tesco former CEO. He talked about like evolving the value proposition of the retailer in accordance for, with what the customer actually wants. Crazy um, philosophy, right? That seems super inconvenient. <laughs> That's right. That does. Uh, <laughs> so then we said, well, how can we look at retailers in the context of what I just discovered here? Um, And so we took retailers, you you guys know me, I always like to think about frameworks to measure performance of the industry and the aggregate. So we put together a framework um, to look at the value proposition of retailers, simple framework on one end of the spectrum. We looked at price on, on the other end of the spectrum, let's think about it in terms of premium, premium products or services, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're an off price retailer, you're getting plotted, you know, to the left uh, if you're a premier service or a product, exclusive product, you're plotted farther to the right. Now, I, w- I will call it. This is a subjective plotting, right? Because we're just sort of making an assessment of where you know retailers are relative to each other. But we thought it was a helpful. And by the way, there's a ton of debate, ton of debate. Myself, uh, my colleagues working through, fighting, and there was a lot of really you know arguments about these relative placement because a single dimension on a value proposition probably isn't fair. It's more complex than that. But we use the framework to look at performance. So as we plotted everybody out, we came up with three categories, right? If you're on the far left, let's call that price-based retailers. If you're on the far right, let's call those premier retailers. And in the middle, let's call them balanced, right? So if there's a retailer that doesn't necessarily offer exclusive, really exclusive products or extremely exclusive experiences, but they're not the cheapest either, they, they, a nice mix of product and, and promotion you know, sort of falls in the middle. So those are sort of the three categories. So we said, okay, we've got three categories. Now let's look at the performance of those categories. Now, and this, again, was another huge aha moment for us, is when you look at the five-year revenue growth um, of, of those retailers who are price-based, you actually find they've done incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, over a five-year period, the growth is north of 30%. Now, if you're a premier based retailer, we also find their growth has been incredibly good. In fact, we find that north of 60%. So we see there's a lot of strength there. Now, the problem is, and you you may have noticed that I overlooked in that, is is those balanced retailers. Over the same five year period, we're seeing about a 2% growth of those. Okay, So it's really a, a bifurcation of where the strength is in the industry. And again, if you relate that back to a consumer, one consumer who is incredibly price sensitive because of a constrained uh, discretionary spending, and another consumer who actually has more money to make more decisions. The question is: Are they buying more stuff? Or are they buying more premier stuff? Or are they buying more premier plus services? You know, oriented. And by the way, you'll hear a lot, you know, in the industry like, "Oh, people want experiences, not stuff," and I. You know, I I'd challenge you to look through the same lens. Is that all consumers want? Experiences, not stuff. I think there's a lot of consumers who are just trying to get by, you know, with with squeezed dollars to to figure out how to buy the stuff I need just to get by. There is a consumer though who has more than enough money to spend on more experiential things than maybe they they, they might of at one yeah. point.
2: And then convenience is a huge factor for them too. That's what the whole car wash thing about. Like you know, they're they're so busy because to make over that hundred k, you can't just you know. You're working sixty-eight hour weeks. Uh, the convenience factor um, for those premium retailers is a big, big part of it as well. Yeah, I why think, why they're choosing that retailer?
0: I think that absolutely makes sense. Is that there's an element here that says at some point you're willing to change trade dollars for time. Yep, and it has to do with well, I have extra dollars. I don't yep. have extra time. Right, yep. I'm willing to do that. Uh, so anyway, as you dig deeper, by the way, if you look just in the last year. Uh, that same exact framework what we find is in the last year if you 're price based you 're up north of six percent if you 're premier based you 're up uh you know eight percent or so, and if you 're balanced if you 're a balanced retailer you 're negative so we we that that cohort for us is negative two percent or so yeah okay so by the way, I, I would call out that not everybody in the cohort performs like the cohort, right? Yep. So in every cohort, there's anomalies where there's a price base that's negative and there's a premiere that's negative and there's someone balanced that's doing a little bit better than others. So that that's absolutely there. But in aggregate, what we find is strength and weakness. And that's really what we were trying to identify.
2: Yeah. And I think this is what hurts the mall-based retailer because a mall is neither, you don't go to the mall saying, oh, my God, I'm going to save so much money, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the dollar store or the club, and those usually are an off mall. Um, you also don't go to the mall saying, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so convenient because, you know, you have to park over here. It's busy. You have to hike over here. And so so malls, I think, kind of end up being in that wasteland in the middle right now.
0: Yeah, m- many of the companies that are more mall-based absolutely fall there. Not all, though, Yeah, uh, but many of them absolutely like the fall. The Apple store
2: is obviously bucking that trend. but
0: Yeah, and b- by the way, one of the things I'd point out is this is a lens, to look at the industry. There are other lenses that also have uh, credibility. You know, the idea about, are you off mall? Are you off, you know,
1: are you mall based might be another lens to look at this. It, I would also just point out that all of these definitions shift over time, which is funny because there was an era in which you would have defined the mall as convenience. That's right. Like we put all the stores together in one place and surrounded them with a bunch of parking. That was much more convenient than having to drive 15 miles to the store. And today, that same structure feels like the inconvenient um, shopping experience because our our expectations have just shifted. That's right. That's right.
0: By, by the way, we looked at this then performance along a lot of dimensions. We looked at return on assets, return on equity. We looked at PE ratio. We were looking at everything we could look at that that would help us understand performance of these cohorts. And, and across the board, on every one of those dimensions, you'll see the exact same um, – you know like if you look at it, when you look at the graph in the report it, it it visually looks the same with strength on in the off price strength in the premier and weakness you know in those that are in the middle hmm. um even if you looked at here's the here's my other favorite conventional wisdom store closings this is – yeah, we're, we're closing stores. The whole industry, we're closing stores, closing brick and mortar. And while, yeah, there's a ton of stores that are being closed, there's actually – if you if you net it out, there's more stores opening than there are closing. <laughs> Further, if you then look at it via the same categories that I put forth, you see the exact same thing occur. You know, uh, price-based retailers, they're opening up stores. In fact, they're opening up stores like crazy. Um, Premier-based retailers also opening up stores. And it's the the balanced retailers where the vast majority of the store closing – you know is occurring
2: so there was like seven thousand closures last year I think is like the number that, that a lot of people put out there so you're you're saying that um, there was more than enough more than seven thousand openings around the the value side and the the other side to
0: yeah counteract well, that what we did is we went out and we studied uh, 10k's press releases we tried to collect everywhere we could and we used there's uh, there's varying reports that include and don't include some you know, yeah. certain companies but what we were able to do is we collected everything we could see um, uh, and and what, our, what, what our study found is that there were more opening than there were closing. Okay, yeah? interesting. Yeah. Uh, we also looked at net promoter scores along the same three dimensions, and we find the exact same thing where you know, consumers are 22% more likely to recommend price-based retailers than they are these balanced-based retailers. Uh, they're 110% more likely to recommend premier retailers than they are balanced you know, hmm. retailers. So we find the exact same thing. And that really has to do with what does the consumer want? This, this simple idea about how is the consumer changing? How are the pressures on the consumer changing? And then how are you as a retailer, you know, evolving and meeting those those changing demands? By the way, the interesting part here is if you look at um, digital through this lens, right, what we find is the vast majority of price based retailers are physical with very little Digital presence, very little digital offering. Um, Of course, once you get to the premier side, you find digital matters a lot more as it pertains to to premier. But I always like to look at this through that lens of like, you know, if if you looked at take take a price based retailer who's had tons of success over the last 10 years and you look at them and and tell them they need to do a digital transformation or or go back 10 years time and tell them the way of the world is e-commerce you know, they would have missed if they'd have done either one of those things, the huge opportunity that they've had in the last 10 years, the amount of value that they've generated. So I, as I started the show, I've been digital, you know, my entire career has been about digital in retail. And I certainly believe that the future of, of of retail is predicated on digital. However, I don't think being digital is the only strategy. I don't think being digital is a sufficient strategy, right? Um, you, we, it's we, not
1: much of a differentiator.
0: It's not point. much of a differentiator. Look, retailers need to have digital and technology fundamentally sort of ingrained in what they do. But how that manifests itself and how they create value propositions around that needs to be, that's the strategic question, right? So anyway, that, that's sort of the highlight. You know, You think about this great retail bifurcation says, look, on one side, we've got income that's really changing therefore the consumer's changing and therefore if we look at retailers and success uh or weakness it actually corresponds you know fairly well with what's happening at the consumer at the wallet level cool so
2: if i'm a uh, if i'm value and premier i kind of know what i need to do i'm in good shape but if i'm balanced what do i do
0: well, actually, I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure that anybody knows what they need to do. I think that's the yeah, that's the hardest question because the world's evolving in a retail environment, consumers evolving so quickly. Yeah. Um. That that how you think about that consumer and how you think about creating value propositions. One of the things we believe is it it, it is increasingly granular. Yeah. You know, and and the value proposition actually is also increasingly modular. So instead of having the big, you know. Um, Monolithic value proposition that you're going to you know offer up to the consumer. What we see is, um, you know, fragmentation. Fragmentation not only of the market, but fragmentation about how I approach the market. You now, some might call this personalization, mm-hmm. right? This idea that I talk to you different than I talk to the next consumer. Well, we actually take that idea further. Uh, this idea that says no not just how i talk to you that's a marketing thing but how i approach you how i serve you my value proposition what assortment i bring to you we've got we've got to take all those things and say that has to come become increasingly granular granular and modular how i take that out to market because that's what's happening to the competitive base and frankly that's happen, that's what's happening to the consumer as well okay interesting so yep. so
2: some of the um so, like Nordstrom and Saks, and I know you don't talk about specific retailers, but when I look at Nordstroms and Saks, they kind of have two faces of the consumers. They have the the luxury side, and then uh, you know, then they also have the price side. So, they, you know, they have Nordstrom Rack and Off Saks. So, that's an, seems to be an example of kind of like what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, without, without a doubt, that's an example. And in fact, if you, if you if you pull apart the vast majority of big strategic moves that any retailers have made recently. They they really do line up with this idea about um, in some cases they're they're different brands. Mm-hmm. In some cases they're acquisitions of brands that you'd go, Wow, that doesn't make sense with you know, with your customer base. Yeah. And if you looked at it through this lens, you'd go, Oh, that, that makes absolute sense. Let's let's acquire a brand that actually lets lets me approach, you know, and and capitalize on a different customer than my customer base. Yeah. Cool.
2: Well, there's um, been tons of talk about millennials. Where
0: where do they fall into this mix? Yeah, you know that's that's a great question because that was another thing we took head on. This conventional wisdom that says, "Oh, this is all the millennial. The millennials destroying all of this." Um, <laughs> and, and what we found was, well, in some ways that's true, but the reality is it's more intricate than that. So at the highest level, when you average all millennials together, we actually find in our study we find, yeah, they behave differently. They behave in many ways that you might expect. They shop online more often. They go to the store less often, you know, those things. But here's what really is fascinating. When we when we separated the millennials by the same income cohorts, here's where the big aha was as it pertains to millennials. It's only the high income millennial that actually really skews the entire collection towards the behaviors that you would expect. The low income millennial actually behaves very much in line with the low income consumer. So we looked at propensity to shop online. And what we found is a low-income millennial shops online roughly the same way a low-income person does. A mid-income, middle-income millennial does the same. We also looked at whether or not they shop at discount stores, and we found the same thing, very much in line. The high-income millennial, though, is, is skewed dramatically towards the behaviors, and therefore they, as a subset of the millennials, actually skew the entire collection of millennials that way. So when you pull it apart, man, it becomes really obvious. Now, the issue that you have is when you look at the high-income millennial, you find out that's about 6% uh, of the population or so. It's a small portion of the population that really behaves differently. So one of the things we counsel and, and caution is to sort of think that the millennial as a group you know, is that consumer, we actually have to pull it apart. We also looked at an interesting uh, question is fragmentation of spend. When you do shop at stores, how many stores do you shop at? When you do stop shop online, how many, uh, how many different places do you shop online? And what we found was high income across the board skews higher. They fragment their spend across more retailers. The millennial online shopper skews almost off the charts in terms of the number of different retailers that they're willing to shop, shop with online. So that's sort of interesting insight. Yeah. They, they, they shop at a lot of,
1: or very few, uh, uh, a lot. They're, so they're, they're highly high. miscuous. And uh, that's right. It. That's right. That's right. Does, uh, and you sort of implied this, but just to say, state it explicitly, like, so all cohort cohorts gain wealth as they get older, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the older the cohort is, the more wealth they tend to aggregate. Um, but one of the things that's been unique about millennials is, They've gained wealth much more slowly than previous cohorts. So when you say, hey, there's a a high income group and a a low income group, that high income group is actually much smaller as a percentage of their total population than was true for uh, Gen Xers, for example. That's a great point because we all like to imagine when we sit around
0: as retail experts that we are and we imagine, uh, you know, a millennial and how they shop, you know, they're they're, they're probably wearing yoga pants. They've got, you know, three smartphones. uh, They probably avocado toast. I think you mentioned that, Um, you know, we've got this this idea of a millennial. The the problem is that idea is a very small portion of the millennial. One in five millennials live in poverty. Uh, Two thirds of millennials didn't go to college. Don't have a degree, uh, and the older millennials, twenty-six to thirty-four, are the cohort with the highest rate of uninsured medical incidents. Are the incidents that most frequently lead people into poverty. So there's many people who are millennials today who are not doing so well. They really fall into categories that we don't often think about when we talk about millennials.
1: Yeah, it, it's fascinating, and I run in this in retail all the time. Is just our industry was born based on these kind of urban legends. And, um, the, the, you know, this kind of word of mouth, like, oh, this is who our customer is. This is what their economic situation is. And, and, you, you know, you're, you're bringing us another example of when you really look at the data, the, the urban legend often doesn't hold up. And I, I used to always chuckle, uh, personas are a big thing for retailers. Right, right. So you go to any retailer and they have this persona of who their customer is. And I, I have this premise that on average, um, Every retailer's persona is ten years younger than their average shopper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because everyone imagines they have this like young hip shopper and yet that, that usually isn't who's shopping in their stores.
0: So so think about this, because I just I just shared data that most of it is uh you know, looking in the rear, right? We're looking we're looking back. Think about, you know, here we are at NRF. Think about the the buzzwords. I'm going to route back to this idea, the buzzwords that were the big buzzwords here at NRF for the last 10 years. Uh, and what I just showed was that there was something going on in the marketplace that none of the buzzwords were, were anywhere clear, close to, right? We're talking omni-channel retails, the future, and mobile. And, and by the way, it's not that those terms weren't important and that they weren't good and that if you did them right, they wouldn't be productive, but there was a whole collection of retailers that, that went a direction right around let's call it off price. Um, you know, that was incredibly lucrative over the last 10 years that none of the buzzwords, you know, would have picked up that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And when we're thinking about business, when I think about retail, and we think about retail strategy, we've got to keep in mind that this is about finding opportunity, finding where those pockets are of, of demand or pressure or needs that we, we can figure out how to capitalize on those and, and serve those and provide to those. Right. Um, and as we look into the future, we have to figure out where are those evolving unmet opportunities. Where are they coming from next, and how do we think about those? Too often in retail, we think about capability. We think, oh, mobile—that's a capability. What we don't think about is—is is this idea of need, right? Um, and the changing competitive environment, and how our competitors are thinking about unlocking those opportunities. So, you know, I, I get passionate about this idea about you know, zig when everybody else zags, right? I'm passionate about this idea about thinking in more granular ways about where there's opportunity and being skeptical. I'm, I'm a vendor. Let me be clear. I'm a vendor, but be skeptical of us, of, of us vendors who, who, you know, show up with the buzzwords and show up with these simple ideas that are conventional wisdom about what success looks like.
1: Yep. With the very rare exception of Jason and Casey, be very <laughs> skeptical of the vendors. That's right. Oh, what,
0: what about Scott? You want to be skeptical of Scott? Well, Scott,
1: <laughs> Scott used to be a vendor. Oh, okay. Now he just helps make our life better by having our car. Yeah.
0: Clean. I love
2: it. We're agnostic vendors, so with channel ChannelVisor, you can sell wherever. So, yeah. Perfect. Choose your own strategy. <laughs> anyway, so
0: that, you know, like you guys know, that, that's, those are the highlights of the great retail bifurcation. Um, and the report, you know, we'll be launching in to, to March. We'll be sharing it with a few of our clients between now and then but in march we're going to be um you know launching it and you'll you'll see it we'll make sure we push it out to the market
2: very cool do you guys project it forward like is this only going to get worse or so like some of the tax cuts and we're seeing some people raise minimum wages for retail employees we're starting to see some movement at that lower level i don't know if it's gonna be enough to move the needle but do
0: you project it forward or there's no projection on it but we certainly have had Plenty of conversations. And of course, this is, it gets wrapped up. It gets wrapped up very quickly in sort of political positions and thinking and, and how you believe these things that are happening now, policy changes may manifest themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I would, my own personal viewpoint, uh, would be that, that, uh, you know, many of the changes that have occurred recently, including the continued, uh, growth in the stock market skews towards one end of the continuum. If you look at the tax, uh, cuts, you know, you have to decide whether or not you believe that the, trick, the trickle down effect will, you know, ultimately find its way uh, to the low in, lower ends of the income uh, yep. spectrum. Um, I'll, I'll refrain from providing. We'll have to, uh, you know, have more conversations over a beer about whether or not we believe one way or another. But we we'll won't certainly, in economics here. At the that's nation. right. That's right. <laughs> it, it's it's a great question about whether or not you know the things that are occurring from a policy standpoint are only going to accelerate this, or whether or not they're going to solve this.
2: Cool. Well, between now and when the report's out, um, what should should uh, listeners that are interested in this topic? Where would you point them? Like maybe your Twitter
0: feed or yeah. So we certainly a Twitter feed will continue to to offer more things out. But I, I I would share this. Look, we're we're sharing with our clients. You know the the initial findings. Yep. I'd be happy to share. You know, in conversation with anybody. You know, prior to our official. You know, March date. So, you know, reach out to me um, via email or Twitter, um, LinkedIn, any of those ways. I'd be happy to, you know, begin sharing some of this. Uh, th- there's nothing uh, super secret here. Um, so we're, we'd be thrilled to, to share this with anybody that thinks this would be helpful. Awesome. And then what's your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, K Loba. K Loba. Yeah. Yep. And we'll put that in the show notes. So you just have to click the link. Cool. So last topic. Um, So you spend a
2: lot of time thinking about the future. You're uh, heavily involved with Singularity University and, and, uh, you know, we we always have these fun topics around Ray Kurzweil and stuff. What anything, what what do you think about the next 10 years? What does it hold for us?
0: You know, I I always like to say, um, you know, if you think that you've seen disruption, you know, you, you ain't seen nothing yet yeah because uh, the reality is if you know when we studied this in the retail volatility index when when you really think about okay is the industry being disrupted today I think pretty much people would say yeah it's being disrupted but if you said but artificial intelligence isn't disrupting and i I can't come up with an example that says oh this has been and blockchain isn't disrupting and driverless cars aren't disrupting and uh you know advances in 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 human health you know so the vast majority of the the technologies even that we'll see over at, at NRF aren't disrupting today. The disruption that we're talking about today is really after 20 years of first and maybe second year or second generation internet technologies, mm-hmm. web, IP, protocol, mobile devices, you know. Um, so, and we certainly have seen an accelerating impact of those. Um, you know, I look at it and go, boy, this next generation that are just now coming online, are are going to make that pale in comparison. But fundamentally, that comes back to the exponential curve of advancing technologies and the impact of those technologies. We're we're now starting to feel the acceleration of that. And I think things like um, I think things like blockchain and its ability to you know open up the marketplace uh, are really going to have a profound effect once once we figure out what you know h- how do you use blockchain to open up trading you mm-hmm. know amongst. Uh, inventory providers and customers and you know um there, there are retailers today that play the ledger in between suppliers and customers today um what happens when you don't need a company yeah. that, that that plays that role what's that do i think i'm i'm pretty bullish on that it'll take a while for that to you know evolve and unlock um you know the advances in artificial intelligence there's a great presentation out of singularity um uh, on the advancements and why, what like why now Why are we talking about it now? When you see that presentation about, well, here's how far it's come in the last five years, it's mind blowing about how far it's come. So I'm confident that in the next, you know, five to seven years that will have a profound effect. So, you know, I guess I tell people you ain't seen nothing yet. That's my view.
1: Yeah, it's funny. One of the things I've learned from from Singularity is uh, the human brain just isn't wired to sort of project these exponential changes and so we have this tendency to think linearly and you go oh man there's been a bunch of change we're probably most of the way through that change mm. when in reality i i wholeheartedly agree that like the overwhelming majority of disruption we're likely to see is still still in front of us which is great news for the three of us at this table yeah. because there's there's going to be a great role for our businesses and more importantly the jason and scott show podcast
0: you know, the, the, the interesting part i'll add one more comment is that it's not usually the technology itself. The technology gets all the, the, the attention. It's the changing competitive dynamics. It's the changing barriers to entry. It's the changing idea about what it means to compete that, that, that we lose sight of, right? We, we want to think about our competitive model as it stands, and we'll tack on whatever technology is, and, and largely we'll be the same. But the disruption comes from the changing competitive environment. That's what changes, not just that, hey, you know, my competitor now has a mobile app. I need a mobile app too. No, that, that's not it. It's like I talked earlier about deflationary pressures on prices in apparel. It's those sort of changes that come from the technology that we miss when we don't double-click and triple-click into what are the implications yeah. of this.
2: And the consumer changing that's more right. rapidly than we can react to them, to your point yeah. about the, uh, the quote that you had. Yeah.
0: So uh, one of the things we're, we're saying, and this is back to buzzword. Right, this is our buzzword. We're saying this isn't the retail apocalypse; it's more like the retail renaissance. Right, this idea that there's this period of change that's occurring. We sort of put it akin to the to the Renaissance period, uh, where technology became important and science became important. And the question is whether or not you can evolve, you know, during the Renaissance period. Right, Mm -hmm. and that's really what we're at because. The industry isn't weak. The industry has strength. There are winners and losers. It's happening at a faster pace than ever. Um, but it's not the apocalypse. The the industry is not, you know, in in, a, in its demise. It's actually in its you know in somewhat it's in its heyday here as we as we figure out how do we compete in a new environment.
1: Well, that is great news, and that is a uh, great place to leave it today because it has happened again. We've used up all our allotted time, so we certainly appreciate your time, Casey. Um, as a reminder, if you enjoyed the, uh, today's show, we certainly would appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, you're welcome to, to click on over to our Facebook page and leave us a comment.
2: Yeah. And uh, a kind of a fun thing is you get to play – you are in a rock band, so you have uh, in your, your, your night gig – our night gig is podcasting and yours is playing uh, bass guitar. So there's a big uh, jam session that the retailers get together at this. So we look forward
1: to seeing you rock out tonight. Yeah, I look forward to it.